I think this is uh, probably the greatest business opportunity in, in the history uh, of our time in the world, perhaps. And the entire world is going to want tangible green solutions that are better than the polluting alternatives. If you think about this and build what we just talked about into whatever business you have, uh, you're going to sit with you know a, a recipe for something that everybody will need in the very uh, near future. You're listening to Green Business with Impact. Your host is Jasper Steinhausen. Hi and welcome to the podcast. You know how once in a while you come across people where you instantly click and connect. That was how it was when I met Jarl from the Danish company Stuga not long ago. Well, actually, we did meet up a couple of years ago when we participated in an online workshop I ran for a client. But back then, there wasn't really any time to talk. But I can assure you that he has spent those couple of years well, and him and his team has been very productive. I could hardly recognize the company and the solutions that they offer when we sat down for real a couple of weeks ago. So today's guest is Jarl Engelweig Lindes, who is the founder of the company Stuka. They are probably best known for their kitchens that they sell to institutional investors. And in the circular community, well, they will be known for creating some really interesting solutions and results. Actually, they don't even see themselves as a kitchen manufacturer, but more on that later. In my book, Jarl and Stuka is doing a lot of things the right way. They're combining different methods and approaches, and it's anchored around using business as a force for good and the circular business thinking. So Stuka is a young company, but they're rapidly growing and they are attracting attention in their market. So be ready to take notes as I dive in with Jarl Engelweig Winnes from Stuka. So Jarl, I think I would like to start by asking you, what's the mission you're on with Stuka? What's sort of the bigger game that you're playing here? Well, thanks, uh, Jesper. First of all, I'm really uh, glad uh, for you having me on board to talk about circularity and products and so forth. My mission with Stuka is basically to try to make a difference. I think when I look out the window, uh, we need to better the way we do things, also the way we consume products and furniture. So uh, basically, I set out to create a company that can you know, take responsibility for all the raw materials we use and consume and the average life expectancy of the kitchen product in, in, in Denmark, at least, is around 11.2 years. That means, you know, we, we throw out more than 200,000 kitchens a year in our little uh, country. And to me, that's, that's intensely wasteful and we need to fix that badly. Yeah, ultimately, I dream of, uh, you know, trying, you know, I want to really help better the building industry as a whole. Uh, our target is um, basically to make simple tools uh, that can help uh, with this transition to net zero uh, when making buildings. So um, uh, to put it a little bit shorter, we basically want to make circular products that can be kept in a closed loop cycle. And uh, through those products, we can contribute to, you know, uh, trying to do things better than we do now. We hear a lot of companies that have different kinds of missions, but I find it interesting to see that that when we have companies that have something that's a bit more ambitious and, you know, like you say, we're actually trying to to change the way the building environment, the building industry works. 
what kind of reactions do you get when you go out and and talk to other people in the community in the build environment and tell well you know we might not be the biggest company in the world but we are planning to change your industry what's it like to have a mission like that in your back yeah well i have to say when we communicate externally i think a lot of people get it but uh, and obviously you know having a cool mission that people can stand behind is you know a plus when you're out there with your products and your services but i have to say the the real you know advantage here that's actually internally in the company uh first of all uh, you know we kind of connected the dots and, and found our problem that you basically we started developing the technology and then we honed in on you know where what, what kind of business problem can we solve with the technology that we made uh, so uh, for myself, it kind of clicked after a while. It, it's not something you just wake up and all of a sudden you find this mission. And, you know, it's for us, it was a little bit of hard work to arrive at a point where we're like, okay, this makes total sense. And, you know, when when we actually wrote down the mission and we're kind of like, this is awesome. Uh, you know, it, it feels really good uh, to fight for something, you know, a bigger mission, just shipping more product. Uh, so in a way, uh, the real advantage is internally in the company, because when you as a founder can persuade yourself that this is an awesome mission, you know, it's much easier to kind of show others why we're doing this. And, and all of a sudden, you know, we're a lot of people running, you know, and pushing behind the same mission. And, you know, it, it's just uh, such a privilege being on a team where everybody's fighting for the same thing. So I have to say, it kind of feels like an inner superpower once you arrive at something, you know, in a mission that's strong and powerful. You know, it's just a huge advantage in Trailway. I like that framing, like an inner superpower. I, f- I fully agree. And and would you say that you can, you know, feel a tangible difference in the, could be creativity, could be productivity, could, you know, anything sort of related to how the team functions? Do you feel like it has changed something either compared to before you have it or in previous companies you have either created or worked in? Yeah, totally. I mean, it just, you know, uh, keeping the gears grinding, you know, uh, you know, it, 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 it um, you know, in the time, I, I think uh, believing in something, it's uh, increasingly more and more needed when, you know, making the jobs of tomorrow, people want to not just waste their time earning money. I think a lot of people are seeing the world around us not really functioning. So, if you can somehow build a company where you have a mission that aligns with, you know, planetary goals, for example, you know, it's it's our experience that, you know, once you get that right, I mean, you will not have any issues attracting new employees. So in a way, in many ways, it, it, it's such a powerful tool internally and also, you know, uh, when building something uh, the multiple people believes. It. Mm. Have you ever any experience with using that sort of, bigger purpose and statement in discussions with uh, potential investors? Most definitely. Uh, I think um, trying to build a company, um, you know, that, that help, you know, or, or at least we're trying to help clean up stuff. Uh, to me, I, I, it's such an important foundational value in any company going forward. So I think, again, the climate change is kind of pressing us and then we can all feel this stuff. So. I mean, there is going to be so much capital in the market looking for active companies that do exactly this, you know. Uh, and also, it, it's to me, it's, you know, in a way, this transition to net zero, basically the digitization of our time, it's just, you know, becoming green as a company. It's just a hygiene factor going forward. So if you're one of the first ones really doing this at heart, 
you're going to have a little bit of a head start when attracting capital because there is a lot of capital in the market looking for exactly you know this and, and tangible solution that that can scale. Hmm. So you would say that having a bigger mission to sort of help solve some of the bigger problems that has helped you attract the investments that you need for your company? Definitely. There are a range of really cool big investors out there actively looking to find you know concrete examples uh, that they can help support. Uh, so I think if you really built it into your core mission and value, um, you're, you're going to open yourself up to attracting a, a lot of uh, new capital in a way. Wow, that's great. Okay, so uh, listeners to this podcast will know that we very often discuss also, you know, how does circular economy, you know, how does it work for you? What have you been doing? What kind of results are you generating? So let's go down that alley for a little bit. Could you tell us a bit about what are the kind of steps you have taken that, you know, spring out of that way of thinking that circularity represents and and what kind of results have that uh, generated for you? Yeah, first of all, um, circularity to me is not uh, necessarily the, the the top goal. It's something, it, it's, I see it as kind of a hygiene factor uh, that you really... Like a tool, right? It's the tool. It's, it's kind of yeah. a tool to, yeah. to embed within your business mm-hmm. and in a way, um, to me, the, the, the really important transition we need to make now is from a linear economy to a circular one. Uh, so in a way, in, in our uh, line of business, uh, interiors for large-scale building, building projects and you know building interiors, uh, over the last 40 years, we kind of, the whole industry pioneered the concept of uh, single-use furniture. So making products that can be used and then disposed of once they break, you just buy new stuff. So repairing things are not really you know, a thing. It hasn't really been for the last 30 years until you go to the really high-end brands. So um, for now, uh, I think there's huge opening in the market for thinking about longevity, thinking about making durable products uh, out of the, the simple notion that, you know, the, the most sustainable product is the one you never buy. And the second most sustainable product is the one you never throw out. We can't help with the first, but we definitely can help with the second. So making, you know, products that can be repaired endlessly and one stuff breaks uh we kind of post ourselves a challenge and you know a broken part in a way that's just you know a resource unutilized resource on a detour what if we can get that resource back into circulation and actually build that into a cash positive business model and how do we do that at scale so those are some of the questions we post ourselves and we uh from very early on we, we hot baked it into the fabric of the company that we just need to do this and circularity is not something you just bolt on your products after you've made them. Uh, if you really want to take advantage uh, at circularity, I mean, you need to basically design the products around the concept of um, value retention within each part. How do you take a part back? You actually, all the way in the design process, think about how to reprocess a part. Uh, so there are many things you need to take into account. And uh, But we were lucky enough to do it from the very beginning. Uh, therefore, it's it's, it's rather easy once you design your whole value chain around this. Mm. So if somebody came and looked at Stuker and then also looked at or compared you with one of the one of your competitors, one of the other kitchen manufacturers, uh, to be more specific, how would one see that you have had a different approach? What are some of the couple of steps where you sort of stand out and have done things differently and why are they interesting? 
Yeah, well, really good question. First of all, I think uh, there are three elements to it. One is a fully digital backend system. We own all, all our data and all the recipes for the product. We, we are in control of all the files. Uh, we can also get back to that. So, so that's one thing. The other thing that's uh, really interesting, uh, I think, uh, in our approach compared to the other guys, well, a normal kitchen manufacturer have around 30,000 SKUs on their shelves in order to deliver whatever models they ship to the market. And every, every year you basically come up with a new range, a new product, and that'll cost you roughly around 8,000 new SKUs or SKUs uh, in order to deliver the new models next year, because you want to come up with new models in order to sell more stuff. But, you know, thinking about it, if you have, you know, 30,000 SKU memory capacity and you come up with 8,000 new every year, basically you forget 8,000 old ones and then, you know, the, the, the consequence of that is after five or six years, whenever a customer needs a part, well, you're out of luck because your memory doesn't really, I mean, you can't really hold more than, you know, seven years worth of product. Uh, therefore, uh, your product goes out of production and your ability to retrospectively support the product, uh, you know, is non-existent. And that's the problem. That's how they conduct their business is basically they want to sell you new stuff all the time. And that's exactly what we need to depart from that way of doing business, because I think that will become over time, very untimely. So what we do is instead of 30,000 SKUs, we basically borrowed some uh, manufacturing theory from Tesla and SpaceX, where they have a, a saying that, you know, the best part is no part and the best process is no process. So we um, really work carefully with, you know, simplicity and the ability to delete parts and processes in the products. So where the other guys are up to around 30,000 SKUs, we're below 300. Below 300 SKUs, that's all fittings and parts included, uh, we can deliver almost any type of product that the other guys can do as well. Uh, the third uh, kind of leg in, in what we do here is designed for disassembly. So all the products are from ground up designed to be taken apart again. And that means they're kind of built for operation. So instead of being built just to being put up and look nice, and then being thrown out in seven, eight years or 11 years, our stuff is basically made to be remade. It, it's constantly, uh, it's designed around the notion of being able to just, uh, you know, on an ongoing basis, just uh, interchange different parts. So you kind of upkeep the value of the total product by, you know, exchanging parts that are broken or scratched. I mean, so people would sometimes want something new, though. I mean, we are, that's how we are as creatures. Exactly. We get bored with stuff. No, it's a really good point. I mean, uh, no matter, like almost as a law of nature, no matter how beautiful the product you own, year zero, it's super nice. Year 10, you kind of fed up with it. So, and in the realm of kitchens, well, you may want another color or a different look. So to us, that was just a core thing, uh, kind of a dogma we had to build into the product. The ability to reskin or add to the product over time to keep it uh, relevant. So what we did was basically really uh, work hard with the hardware and making sure that you can actually uh, tectonically shift the kitchen in and out. You can make new fronts. You can reskin it easily. So for around a thousand euros, you can with our models, you can you can basically get a new kitchen where you interchange all the you know exterior of the kitchen and you know visually you almost get a brand new product for like a fraction of the cost of an actual new product. So in a way, it's it's hard back into the design as well. That's really interesting, but 
I have this feeling that somebody will be sitting now thinking, well, your product lasts a lot longer. You spend a ton of time being able to simplify it and you can actually sell an upgrade for just a thousand euros. You know, what's the business case in this? Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, um, so we spent a fair bit of time uh, value engineering a product where we, uh, gun looking at Tesla, we try to really uh, optimize every part of the manufacturing process, really try to basically reduce the amount of fat within you know every single process. And that leads us to being able to ship a product that costs, you know, 5,200 euros, we can bring a solid wooden, almost carpenter-like feeling kitchen to the market. So you get a lot of value for your money. But instead of going after a BC market, we um, basically we went after the most hardcore part of the kitchen market, which is bigger uh, contractors, bigger uh, builders buying 500 institutional investors. Plus, yeah, yeah, institutional yeah. investors buying more than 500 products a year. Everybody wants to, you know, sell a product that you sell five, 500 of. So therefore, this part of the market is basically the, the hardest, the most competitive part of the kitchen market. And we decided to start exactly there uh, with the idea that, well, if we can, through value creation and longevity and, you know, basically making a product that's built around low-cost operation, can we penetrate that market or that part of the market? We can always, you know, uh, you know, go left and right in other markets and eventually end up at maybe a B2C play. So um, we really thought uh, long and hard about how to approach the market and we actually succeeded in bringing our products and our, our services to the market. And what we sell them is basically a product that costs, you know, 20% more than a standard uh, black product. Uh, we can sell them a fully circular product that's built around, you know, longevity and the ability to operate them digitally. And that means um, you can keep interchanging parts. And that means, you know, we, uh, in theory, uh, although it, it may cost 20% more upfront, uh, after only around seven years, uh, you actually, uh, the product paid for itself because of lower uh, cost for uh, you know, operations. So the clients we target are the ones that think TCO, like total cost of ownership, compared to just the upfront cost of something. So basically, uh, the products we're up against are the ones that are disposable. I see it almost uh, like buying a really inexpensive car. It may be cheap to buy, but it's super expensive to keep running if it's not built you know, for, to, to own and operate in a taxi fleet. You may want to go with an old Mercedes instead. You know, it, it's, it costs a little bit more, but it's built like a tank. Uh, so in a way, that, that's how we approach it. That's really interesting. So you are thinking, well, you, you actually stuck with the kitchen. So let's, let's look at the total costs here. And that's where you hit a home run. That's why it's a good investment to buy your solutions compared to the cheaper upfront uh, alternatives. Exactly. Well, well, in 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 you know, in almost any type of product, uh, the fully circular option, you know, it's most of the times it's built better than the the, the standard uh, disposable alternatives. So you kind of have this green premium on top. And in our case, uh, we actually had we found out in order to sell our products to the market through the very very competitive market that we went after. Well, this green premium we could cost. Uh, we, we, you know, the clients could you know, live with up to 20% additional costs, but no more than that. You, you couldn't, you know, you couldn't fit it in to any building project. You, uh, so, so in a way we kind of had this upper boundary. So 
what we did was basically slim the product and remove material to figure out how little material could we get away with. How do we value engineer the product to fit that exact price point of maximum 30, like 20% more than, than the standardized product. So, uh, you know, really getting in there, understanding your market, understanding the, the business model from your client side of things, but also, uh, you know, have a very strong focus on, you know, uh, value creation and right pricing. It's a very difficult exercise and it, it takes a bit of time. Uh, but you need some really good clients that are open with you in order to uh, kind of share their uh, playbook with you. And that's how we did it. We, we took, you know, a few select clients and really went open books for them and, and discussed greatly in how, how do we maximize your value and you know what's in it for us. And, uh, you know, through collaboration and partnerships, we actually managed to, uh, I think, uh, quite uh, efficiently engineer a product that, that, that you know, fills uh, a void in the market. There's a lot of interesting questions that come to mind here, but uh, one is that when you go into a market, any existing market, and come with what I guess it's fair to say a somewhat different approach here, what I hear a lot of the times from innovators is that you know it's hard to get in. Right. Uh, so if I may ask you frankly, you know, how's the sales going? Does anybody want to buy your product apart from those few partners that you really ended up, you know, having a good relations with? So, so how's sales going? Yeah. Product to market in April, 2022. And already I think we have more than 6,000 housing units in the pipeline. So it's uh, millions and millions in, in sales and projects and uh, yeah. So our core issue, the sales are growing really great. We're growing at 3x uh, year over year, hopefully. Uh, trending uh, about right for now. Uh, but uh, of course, the work or the you know the kitchen industry is bound with some uh, you know what, what should we say speed limitations to you know we can't deliver products faster than the buildings are ready in. You actually have to build the building yeah before you can install the kitchen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. We, we can't just deliver them on a green field somewhere. So, you know, that, that, that kind of caps our top speed a little bit because of market dynamics and so forth. But nevertheless, what we see is big cases being shifted a little bit because of financing costs and so forth. But nevertheless, the, the interest from the market is uh, amazing. So I, I think, you know, almost any company should ask themselves, what would it be worth if I, in whatever market I'm in, could I value engineer a green product that, you know, costs roughly the same as a black product? Who would not buy the green product? So I mean that that's our inner guideline is really trying to hit that balance. And through you know finding clients that understand total cost of ownership, we actually managed to to strike that balance and find exactly that uh, type of customer. I like you sort of really take those core components of what I would call the mindset, the circular business mindset, to heart. You know, it's it's really about that you're harnessing that, as you say. These are the principles. I don't. Do you have sort of a certain set of values or principles that you sort of guide you in your everyday work? Definitely. Um, we have, you know, when evaluating a new design, we have a certain rule set we work with in order to qualify what we do kind of lives up to kind of our way of making things. So again, you know, deleting parts, making, you know, is the part even required? Can we actually delete the part? That's the first question to start out with. Uh, and then, you know, you need to, uh, you know, some of the values, if I run through our inner value set is, you know, we, we've spent a fair bit of time uh, looking at resource efficiency. When sizing a part or design, uh, 
we ask our designers to really understand the raw materials that the part comes from in order to, you know, hyper-optimize material waste uh, and material savings, all that stuff. So really, we, you know, understand and have respect for resource. Also, um, we think a lot about interfaces. Again, a thing we uh, stole from Tesla, uh, they also work with interfaces. If I contextualize in the Tesla example, you know, they have a team working on the chassis of the car. And also they have a separate team working on the dashboard. And the dashboard team, uh, they can basically, you know, go nuts in the dashboard. There are actually 12 bolts where the, the whole panel clicks into the rest of the car. You can go nuts in the dashboard, but you cannot touch those 12 bolts because they're through that interface. You have compatibility with the other parts of the system. And in our case, we have, you know, parts of walls in the system where we constantly want to tweak the sizes of, you know, whole patterns in order to be able to have, you know, future upgrades, all that stuff, uh, that whole pattern, um, you know, you can change the part, but the whole pattern is really expensive because if you change the whole pattern, we lose backwards compatibility. So in a way, uh, interface thinking is very important for being able to make stuff that can be upgraded in the future. So the next point is we cannot predict the future, but we sure as hell can make products that are ready for an uncertain future where, you know, do we need to come up with new plugins for our products in the future? Yes, we will. So uh, basically thinking that into the way you design the products and making them upgradable from the get-go, I think is, is, is another really important value. Um, we have other uh, values as pokey-okey. Um, how do you make products that are, when putting them together, are idiot-proof? Pokey-okey? Did you call that? Pokey-okey. Pokey-okey. Yeah, it's, it, I think it's called Pogiyoki. It's a Japanese expression. I think it may be from Toyota. I think that the, the good translation is idiot safe, but I think it's actually idiot, idiot proof or something. Um, it's all about making products that click together in a very logical way. It speaks into the whole simplicity of the products and ease of use. Uh, also a very important value. And then design for this is for maintenance. That must be important as well for upgrade and maintenance, right? Uh, the, it can be done faster. Exactly. And, and also, uh, you know, design for disassembly, the cornerstone of everything here. You need to be able to take parts, you know, apart again. And one of the last values is the ability to uh, reset a part. So if you get something back, you can do a lot when designing the part for making that part, you know, making it super easy to put it back into an industrial process where you can, you know, relacquer, resand, or, you know, it speaks to the materials you use and the complexity of the material composition. So, so in our example, the way you normally make interior products, you know, an IKEA kitchen, you know, all the walls consist out of a lot of chips in the middle in an IKEA kitchen and melamine and ABS plastic and, you know, it's a composite material. Problem is, once you scratch hole in that part, it's impossible to repair. The only thing you can do is crunch it up or burn it. So um, in our case, we use modern materials, so kind of solid wood. Uh, if you scratch it, well, there is the same stuff inside of it, so you can just sand it or relacquer it thereby resetting it. If it, you know, it, if you get, you know, a deep scratch in a part, you can actually just reapply a new uh, top layer of veneer. And then, you know, in a way you reset the part, you can sell it as a new part. So um, all of those ideas are something we think a lot about when designing products, because that's to us is the key to making stuff that, uh, where we kind of retain the value in the part. Sounds like ideally you could get a kitchen back. I know, I mean, you're too, your company's too young to actually get anything back, hopefully, uh, since it's made of good quality. So it should be out there <laughs> still performing. But 
ideally you would be able to get your products back and use a bigger proportion of the raw materials again or what? Yeah, we, we, uh, our internal uh, number is about 90% uh, recyclability. 90, 90. Yeah, we aim to be able to basically reuse all of it. Uh, to us, it's, you know, you can do a lot of things when getting a damaged part back. I have to say, we have more than half a million part out running on your management uh, through various different clients. And we do not have a lot of stuff breaking uh, because of, you know, the, uh, you know, the, the, the quality of the materials and the hardness and the rigidity, everything is quite robustly made. So it doesn't really break. So, but we're really looking forward to getting things back. Uh, <laughs> it's not so often you hear that from a manufacturer. I just so look forward to somebody sends something broken. Yeah, back. No, no, we, we had a few, uh, you know, test kitchens out. We had one, but you know, one of the first ones we did, we put outside in the rain for two years and then we reskinned it and, you know, it still works. You, it's, you can't really see that it is bit out there. So, but again, it, it's just down to using uh, proper materials that are, you know, built around this idea of resetting. So once you got that in there, I mean, it, it's fairly easy to do. So uh, in order to get started with circularity, uh, instead of basically um, coming up with the whole concept ourselves, we looked at a similar market where we found a, a big manufacturer of, actually it's a, a huge uh, painting company. They're, they're actually repainting existing furniture. They built a process for taking inexpensive wooden floors back into circulation. So um, we saw those processes and uh, made a test with those guys on basically uh, having them lacquer our new kitchen fronts and also uh, using the same uh, industry process, we can actually inject uh, refurbished parts through the same system. Because we didn't invent all of it, we're just tying into existing processes. We actually, let's say it costs us uh, $10 to make a new part, we can actually reset an existing part for around uh, $3. So, I mean, Already now, without a lot of volume, we're you know we're cash positive in a way that you know it's easier for us to reset a part uh, than make a new one. So your 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 actually your cash flow will just be increasingly better when you have kitchens that actually start to come back because you have then the better part of your raw materials for free, quote unquote. Um, yeah, it all it all came out of the idea of us you know is, is thinking about this stuff and and going like. What would it be worth if our, you know, old clients could send us raw materials for free uh, for us to then reuse? So uh, thinking about that stuff and then designing it into the product, into the material choice, you know, it, it just makes perfect sense. So uh, the only thing we really haven't cracked is the logistics part. Um, it it kind of makes sense. So what we are doing for now is picking up used products for free. So we kind of pay to take them down. Uh, that's how we do it. So basically telling our clients, when you're done with the product, uh, we're not done with it, so we'll come pick it up. I'd like to just have a You mentioned a bit earlier about you, you, one of the first things you said were that you own all the data and the digital infrastructure. Could you just tell us a little bit more about that part? Because I, I find that kind of interesting. Again, you're actually, you know, I think most people would look at you and think yeah, this is a kitchen company, kitchen manufacturing company. But could you just, you know, open up a little bit to that part of the of the what's going on behind and what sort of the backbone that you're running this kitchen manufacturing company on? Uh, we see ourselves more as a tech company than a kitchen company. We just happen to make kitchens. 
uh, because that's a product where we sample upon, you know, a really good business model that we can disrupt, really improve, <laughs> yeah, just, oh, yeah, improve with the technology that we made. Uh, so in a way, um, as I told you when we uh, talked last time, well, uh, actually, we started doing the technology. We had the idea of making this digital procurement engine where we draw products and we can, you know, see in real time actual cost of material materials, waste, and, you know, processes involved in making the product. Uh, and that, that, that we were starting kind of making that formula. So that's actually our backbone system. We can, you know, put in, you know, a quarter of a million parts at a time and we can calculate, you know, individual processing costs per part. So when we source a job to our uh, different factories, we do not own our own factories, but we produce through multiple um, national and international factories. Uh, we send them exactly, you know, exact drawings um, that, you know, goes directly to their machine. And when we make a change, they cannot in any way change uh, the recipe for, uh, you know, what a material uh, machine spits out. It's for us to always keep the, the gold standard. Uh, and that's, uh, you know, by having those files uh, in our inner uh, system, when we change something, we always make sure that we produce the right version of the part. So we have a, a really big, digital infrastructure that manages all our assets and all our individual paths. That means we can send products out to any factory. We can onboard in around 12 weeks. We always send, you know, perfect files that are really easy to manufacture. But also what we send them is um, a printer, an RFID printer that's attached to our web cloud. So whenever we have a manufacturing volume uh, or basically a batch production that we send out, uh, the local printer prints all the RFID codes for the subcontractor or the manufacturer to then put all the stickers on the parts. And that gives us the ability to trace every single part with a unique uh, serial number. So in a way, it's our backend system is... So, so what you're saying is that every component in every kitchen you ever sold, you, have to, you, have a, you can basically track that? Yes. We have a unique serial number for each and every part that we produced. And that's, you know, having that serial number, uh, you know, allows you to then do a lot of nifty stuff on top. But in a way, when we then produce a batch, uh, the manufacturer just puts individual uh, serial numbers, or chips, on every part. It takes, you know, around one second per part and they do it for free. But uh, when they then ship out all these many parts to our centralized warehouse, you know, we can actually scan the parts coming in and then we can pack the kitchens and then we can scan the parts when we send them out again to whatever location that the end product is going to. And having those chips on the parts just enables us to track through the entire value chain exactly where is the part. And also when in the future, we hopefully will get stuff back, you know, we, we can trace every part back to its origin. And we even know what, uh, you know, what manufacturing batch in which factory and, and the kind of the full value chain we can calculate for each and every part. I imagine there is some people sitting out there that's also thinking, this is really, really interesting. And, and, and also looking at what are these things that uh, seem to be really exploding out there right now is the CSRD, the fact that we, that larger companies need to start to, to uh, report at a really high standard on a ton of indicators, 1100 something, I'm guessing you as a partner will make some of that a bit easier because you just have everything. I, I guess I could sort of just 
you know, drop you an email, say, could you please give me an inventory list and the, and the impact side of it. And, uh, sounds like you will just say, yeah, sure. Give me five minutes and, <laughs> and I will have it for you. Yeah, we, we can actually one up that even more. So in uh, when we send out uh, any given product to a location, we have a, what we call a master ID. Basically, it's a big QR code. Uh, it, it's situated in We Do Kitchens. So in the sink cabinet, which is the single part that you interact with the most in a typical Danish kitchen, you, you inter- interact like, I think it's 17 times per day. You open and close your sink cabinet. So in that exact cabinet, we placed a big QR code that you can scan. Then you can access a data platform where you can kind of see a 3D model, a digital 20 view existing kitchen. Uh, you can see all the parts. And if something is broken or damaged, you can actually click the part and reorder a new part. Uh, and because we have all that data and we know exactly where the product lives, uh, we also know where you are when you uh, click the part. We, uh, in essence, can calculate uh, individual uh, CO2 uh, footprints on each and every product at any location in any configuration. So in a way, the client can actually see the the impact uh, in the end product itself. And the client, uh, uh, the institutional investor, has a fleet management system that we also built on top of this, where you can see your entire fleet. You can see all the errors that are reported. You can see all the parts you have out there you can calculate in you know embodied carbon and, and you know ocean acidity all that stuff is kind of hard baked into our backend system so here we're into the third part of the value creation we have to our clients because we built every you know circular products that are you know built to last when we built it on a digital foundation you know all of a sudden we have this amazingly detailed ESG reporting hard baked into the value chain itself so that's exactly the third selling point we have towards our clients. It must also open up a ton of opportunities to add services since you know so specifically exactly what's in basically almost what room, but at least on what location where there might be this building with 20, uh, 20 uh, kitchens in or whatever, but you could definitely say on this location, you have this amount and this and this, this is specific details. Yeah. This is the age, this is the model, this all the details. So if, if, and as you say, people can then just click, uh, click on a phone and then they are back in the, the science studio and they know that they can upgrade their kitchen without just throwing everything out, but knowing that you use at least 90% of it again. Uh, so I guess that's a pretty good value proposition and technical platform. <laughs> to create a ton of service models. Are, are you doing that as well? Or is that sort of part of the uh, plans? It's a really good uh, question, yes. We're, uh, obviously, we're testing one lot. And it's not something that's you know, uh, our first priority, but uh, we have been testing it. So in the future, what if you could have your own hardware store within the product? So, um, you know, those are some of the questions we're posing ourselves. And I can't say that, I can't say that we, we, we actually tested some of that stuff and it, it kind of works. Uh, so what's really interesting is, you know, normally the way we buy products, uh, when we buy kitchens or interiors, you buy the product and then you kind of get fed up with it over 10 years, you need to throw it out. What if you could interact with the product and through the product, uh, it would know what other stuff would fit whatever you're looking at. And in a way you could serve through a, you know, contextual web shop, you can serve the, the end user with, you know, upgrades that would fit the given product. So in a way, I, I think that 
you know, having that underlying architecture is really, really important for making, you know, responsible products that are built to last a lifetime. And that's uh, what we really ultimately want to uh, strive for. So uh, normal companies basically want to sell you new stuff every 10 years. And we, you know, are trying a new model where we say we basically we tell our clients, we just want to sell you something once. And then we're committed to keep the product uh, running for as long as humanly possible. And in a way, I think that's going to be a hiding factor for uh, companies of the future to think of, think in that way. How do you put yourself out of business? How do you how do you transform? So I mean, I, I have to when when I dream of where we are in twenty years, we may not be selling kitchens anymore. We we just focus on keeping all the the hardware running that we have out there. Do you ever wonder how solid a foundation you have for creating a competitive edge out of your effort on sustainability? Here's how to find out. I've created a free assessment tool for you where you can score yourself on the five principles you must master to gain a competitive edge using the circular economy. So just answer 30 quickfire questions, get your score and get recommendations for your next steps to improve your foundation. It's free and it only takes a few minutes. You find it by going to greenprofit.scoreapp.com. As I've been just sketching here while you've been talking, it seems like your business is basically a triangle where in one corner we have the digital model and, and all of that approach. And then in the other, we have the circular business mindset as a tool and the approach, including design and all of that. And then in, in the third corner, it basically, it, it's business for good, right? It's this mission-driven or purpose-driven business I don't know if you can sort of relate to that. It was just sort of when, as you started talking, I ended up sketching this little model, but it seems like that's how you describe yourself. Is that fairly accurate? No, definitely. I um, Again, uh, what I dream of uh, with the company that I helped create is uh, to have a positive impact. And in my view, that, that you know, uh, if we could in any way contribute to, you know, better the way we consume products, I, I think that, that would be an amazing goal for us to achieve. And in a way, I have to say, um, how do you get a lot of impact? Do we make something that's fully circular for the few? Or do we make something that's really scalable? Well, if impact is kind of uh, your your milestone, I, we need to make something that's relatively available and it's easy to roll out many, you know, uh, many different places in the world. So in a way, the way we think about it, um, I have to say the world around us run on this operating system called capitalism. So in a way, if we need everybody to transition to net zero, we, we, we kind of need to make net zero uh, play on this, you know, run on the same operating system. So what if net zero could, you know, cost less than the polluting alternatives? That's, to me, that's the guidance you should be using. And you can flip around and say, what if you came up with a net zero product that on cost could outperform the, the polluting alternatives? Who would not buy that product? So exactly that is what we strive uh, for. And whenever, you know, whatever business decision we make, we, we kind of always review that milestone as uh, can we make the, the, the green product uh, less expensive than the polluting alternative? Because if you manage that, you, you will make something that's uh, expansion and scalable, I think. Yeah. I think that's one of the reasons why I sort of instantly fell in love with, you, with your business and your setup and you guys. Uh, because I think you are such a great example of what can come out of of really taking the green transition, quote unquote, uh, serious and addressing it as a business issue, and and, uh, and that's why I think I sort of ended up drawing that little 
model there because it it all starts with that bigger purpose of wanting to utilize business as the force for good and make that change. And then you have the tools that are sort of in two different ways. One is circular, very focused on the kind of product you create and the digital that will you know, enable you to scale rapidly and deliver on some a lot of the things that you've been designing up in, in that sort of circular corner of this small model. Most of the time, when people talk about sustainability, circular economy, green transition, whatever, you know, it's really this reduce, avoid, stop doing, being less bad discussion. And, and in my view, it just, there's not energy in that. And we're completely missing the picture and the opportunity to create new and better solutions. Is the green transition something that is a burden we need to, you know, minimize, aiming at that zero at some point? Or is it more like the opportunity side and the business development side? Where do you see yourself and what's your experience with, with being in the marketplace in where these two different approaches live? Yeah, I have to say, if you see the green, the, the great green transition, let's call it that, as a burden of some sort, I think you're fundamentally missing a huge piece of the puzzle. I, To me, in a way, I, I think this is uh, probably the greatest business opportunity in, in the history uh, of our time. In the world, perhaps. Uh, and, you know, the entire world is going to basically going to want tangible green solutions that are better than the polluting alternatives. So in a way, I think if you think about this and build what we just talked about uh, into whatever business you have, uh, you're going to sit with, you know, a, a recipe for something that everybody will need in the very uh, near future. So... Uh, I see this as a huge opportunity of, you know, doing good, but definitely making something that's very scalable. So it's a huge opportunity. Mm. That's probably a really, really good place to end because it defines, I guess, the role of business in the bigger transition. If you do it in, in a way that's somewhat similar with this, <laughs> uh, then all of a sudden business is that significant part of the solution to the problems that we brought upon ourselves, but in a way that's good for business and good for the world. I really thank you for uh, for showing up and sharing it today and uh, and for doing what you do, because it's such, we really need the clear examples. And, um, and I love the fact that you, you know, your, your growth trajectory is so rapid as it is, because that generates some of the respect that's needed for the model. That you know, you can actually say, well, we're fairly new, but we are also already fairly successful. <laughs> so that's really good. So uh, I just love to see where you're going. If if we redid this in three years, what would be the story that you would then tell and say, you know, what I'm really thrilled about is that we've managed to do this in the last three years. A, a really good question. Again, uh, I'm super impatient, so uh, I am probably going to disappoint myself, but I'd love it if we could enter multiple markets because what we're really here to show is how to make something that's simple and very scalable. And to me, that that's what we need in order to succeed at a massive scale. And I think that's very much needed now. Practical solutions that are very scalable so we can fix the huge problems and the change we're, we're looking into. Um, so I love it if we could in three years, maybe uh, test out a few new markets. I I'd be uh, profoundly happy if, uh, 
we could get so far that fast. Great. Well, why don't we why don't we uh, try to have a conversation like this in three years time, and then <laughs> then we can see where we are at. But until then, I'll just say once again, thank you so much for for coming here and sharing, and uh, and best of luck with the journey. Uh, I will definitely be keeping an eye on you, and um, and it was really really a pleasure to have you here. Well, thank you, Esper, for having me, and uh, yeah, thank you so much for uh, you know getting a chance to deep dive into how we do things here at Stuckey. Thank you for listening. Uh, this podcast is edited and produced by Anita Hellström from Helcom, and honestly, it would not have been possible without her. But please remember to hit the subscribe button, and if you liked what you heard, then connect with me on LinkedIn, where I share a lot of stuff around how to grow a thriving business that makes the world a better place. You've listened to Green Business with Impact. You can get more insight on how to create circular business on bwimpact.com. If you want to get in touch, you are very welcome to connect with Jasper on LinkedIn. Just type in Jasper Steinhausen. If you have questions, comments or suggestions for future podcast episodes, please contact Jasper, J-S, at bwimpact.com. Dot com.